Turn, if you would, again to First Peter chapter three. Finish up chapter three today, uh, Lord willing, unless I fall dead. Or the Lord comes back. Let's turn to God in prayer before we turn to Him and His Word. Father, we need uh, your Spirit to see the truths which you're presenting before us this morning, and to believe them, and to walk in them, and so we ask that he would move powerfully this morning in our hearts. We trust you, our Father, and in your perfect providence to take care of us, uh, whether we are in a state of blessing or in a state of suffering, and we pray that the, the fear of pain and suffering for your sake and for your Son's name uh, would never overshadow the triumph and the glory that is ours in Him. So I pray that you would embolden us this morning and encourage our hearts, train our minds, and convict our spirits in Christ. Amen. Let's stand and read God's Word together. First Peter three, eighteen through 22 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Amen. You may be seated. Peter has been continuing on and on about being humble, meek sufferers uh, like Christ was. As followers of Christ, we, like Christ, need to take up our crosses in order to follow Christ and follow in his footsteps. And it's expected that we are to suffer ridicule and persecution uh, for the name of Christ. But Peter's also been faithful to point out to us uh, this thread of, of greater value in suffering for the name of Christ. We have a higher calling. We have more freedom that kind of transcends worldly constructs. Uh, We have this greater reward that we look forward to. We have an identity that's rooted in God and in His covenant. And suffering with humility for the good is far greater in God's eyes than any worldly accomplishment. Uh, So there's good things in suffering, And yet, though we know those heights of glory that we're called to in suffering, we can falter, we can be tempted to give in. Suffering and persecution can get the the better of us. I think pain and uh, confusion that result from suffering are are tools that the enemy uses to, to cause us to kind of take our eyes off of that greater picture, the greater glory of God, and to turn inward to ourselves and to focus on our own pain. Uh, My mind kind of goes to people like prisoners of war 
And at first they may stand strong, but over time it kind of becomes too much and, and they falter and they might fail. Uh, John McCain has one such story. I don't know if you've read his story, but he was shot down over North Vietnam and imprisoned for five years in a North Vietnamese prison camp. He endured uh, severe torture and poor treatment the entire time. And he remained strong for much of that time, uh, but after one particularly brutal encounter, he did falter in a sense, and he signed this confession that, that he was a war criminal to the North Vietnamese, of which he regretted and, and said, I had learned what we all learned over there. Every man has his breaking point, and I had reached mine. So kind of despite all his strength, all his personal patriotism, his deeper understanding of the, the larger picture of the military battle going on, uh, his own personal plight, albeit relatively mildly and, and certainly understandably, uh, got the better of him and kind of distracted him from those greater uh, realities. So as Christians, it is really a high and worthy calling to follow in the footsteps of, of our Savior and our elder brother, but that pain, that journey is, is a painful one for us. Suffering at times clouds our vision to see the true glory of following in the footsteps of Christ. I think that's the crux of what Paul, Peter here is, is driving at, that suffering clouds our vision to see the true glory of following in the footsteps of Jesus. So the purpose of Peter then in this passage is to direct our attention back to that bigger picture, to the greater glories. He wants us to remember that humility, meekness, and suffering are, are not the end game for Christians. That's not all there is for us. We're heading toward, and even now presently live in, greater, more glorious realities. So the main idea of this passage, though as I'm sure you notice the details are tough, the main point is pretty plain to me. We follow Christ in his suffering and death on the one hand, but we likewise follow him in his resurrection, life, ascension, and victory. So yes, there is suffering in Jesus, but there is also victory in Jesus. So my hope is that this passage will encourage us to those same ends, that we will be encouraged to, to persevere in following in the footsteps of Jesus and that our eyes would be turned uh, away from ourselves and to those greater realities of the Christian life. Now you'll notice in this passage, Peter draws our attention to uh, three ways in which we follow Christ and are united with him. Uh, it follows the progression of his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. His death, resurrection, and ascension, and we follow him in all three of those things. If you look back to verse 17, we see that, that Peter here is answering the question, why is it good to suffer for the good? Why is it better to suffer for the good? Why is it good to suffer for righteousness' sake? He says in verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And then here this causal connection, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. So verse 18 is the beginning of this answer. Why is it better to suffer for the good? And the answer is because Christ suffered and died for the good. 
So last week I spent some time focusing on those kind of glorious redemptive implications of verse 18, uh, that Jesus perfectly, as the righteous one, suffered on the behalf of we, the unrighteous. But I don't think Peter's primary purpose there is to kind of put forth this uh, defense of penal substitutionary atonement. His primary purpose is to put Jesus forward as our example, as the one we follow after. You know, why as a Christian do I keep putting up with unfair treatment just because I'm a Christian? Well, well, Jesus was, with the greatest of unfairness, He, the righteous, the pure, spotless Lamb of God, sacrificed for we filthy rebels. Or we might ask ourselves, why do I keep getting that, that short end of the stick? All I ever do is try to stick up for what's right and true and just. Where is the good in it? Well, Jesus suffered and died in order to bring us to God, to win unto God a people for his own possession. Jesus did these things that he did, both as our example and as our forerunner. Because he's our example, we imitate him like like a little brother imitates a larger, a bigger brother. You know, the little one might not even understand what the big, big one's doing, but he just does it anyway. He follows in his footsteps. Beyond being an example, though, to imitate, we are also united to Christ. And thus, in him, we, in a sense, do what he did for us. We follow him not just as a brother, but as a forerunner. We die to self. We pick up our crosses and follow him because we're united to him in his death. That's a hard and difficult calling uh, because it carries with it the implications of the painful process of mortifying our flesh, of bearing the reproach that Christ bore, of joining with him in his sufferings. Uh, but it is a good calling to suffer with Christ. Because there's no better person to follow. No uh, better course can be plotted than the one that Jesus already ran. But we're not left uh, there in our suffering. Uh, As Paul says, if we have been united to Christ in his death, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So we follow in Jesus, we follow Jesus in death, but we also follow him in resurrection and new life. So, verse 18 again, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So that last clause of the verse there that we didn't cover last week, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, is, I think, the means by which he suffered on our behalf and brought us to God. He was crucified, died, and was buried, and he was raised again. And by doing those things, he suffered on our behalf and brought us to God. And in doing so, he set for us the pattern, the same pattern that we've seen throughout 1 Peter, of our own death in him and our new life in him. Now, there's varying opinions about what this means, that Christ was made alive in the Spirit. And the way we take that phrase kind of impacts the way we deal with the rest of these difficult verses to follow. Uh, So does Peter mean to say that Jesus died physically, but his Spirit was made alive? 
that he was dead in his body, but he had a living spirit anyways. I don't think that's what he means. For one thing, he says it was made alive. Well, Jesus' spirit was never made alive. It's eternal. It's always been alive. It just is. Also, uh, that spiritual life of Jesus is not the thing that brought us to God, as he says. It was in his bodily resurrection that he achieved that particular victory. So I don't think that's what he means. Uh, does he mean that Jesus was made alive by the Spirit, with a capital S? By the Holy Spirit, that is. And certainly, we know that he was that, but I think Peter here has more in mind than than that. He's making this parallel contrast here between flesh and spirit. And it would be sort of strange in my mind, for on the one hand, he's put to death in his flesh, but on the other hand, he's made alive by the Holy Spirit. It's not a very good parallelism. And clearly, it is a parallelism. So it makes much more sense to me if, if he's contrasting the death of Jesus in the flesh to his new spiritual life post-resurrection. This fits also very well within the broader context of 1 Peter with this theme of new birth. Uh, so I take Peter to be saying he was made alive in a spiritual resurrection. That is, he was raised by the Spirit, but also with the new uh, spiritual body, as we see in uh, 1 Corinthians 15. So Peter then is pointing us once again to that new life, that new birth that we have in Christ, the resurrection life we have in him, which has been one of, if not the major theme of First Peter. So again, yes, we suffer and die with him, but we also share in his life. And we too, as he was, will be raised one day with new spiritual bodies. But even now we've been given that new life, that resurrection life, in Christ. So, in a sense, our spiritual life is initiated and we look forward to its final consummation. Now, Peter continues here in discussing uh, the spiritual resurrection of Christ in terms that, uh, in images that at first glance are strange, uh, are foreign, and if I'm honest, at second glance, and at third glance, <laughs> and at fourth glance. <laughs> These next verses are often called some of the most difficult to interpret in the New Testament, and I think for good reason. Though I have, through studying them, really grown to, to love them, though I wrestle with them, I've grown to have a deep appreciation for the content of what I believe he's saying, and I make no claims to have uh, figured them out or untangled them myself, but we'll do our best to tangle with them and draw out Peter's intentions here. So a few guiding principles that I think help is that our interpretation has to fit it, fit within the greater context of answering the question prompted by verse 17, which is, why is it better to suffer for doing good? In some sense, he's still answering that question. Also, it has to fit, fit within the context, which is clearly being pointed out here, of the greater victory of Christ. It, it has to fit within those two contextual bounds. And, as I said, the way in which we interpret the end of verse 18 uh, really does affect the interpretation of these verses. So here they are again in verse 19. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience awaited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. 
in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So, of course, most of the difficulty centers around this phrase that he went to proclaim to the spirits in prison. What does that mean? I think we have to answer at least three different questions here. Uh, first, when did this proclamation take place? Secondly, who are these spirits? And thirdly, what what did he proclaim to them? And I believe once we answer the first question, which is when did he do it, the others kind of fall into place. So, when did Jesus go on this mission? Or more specifically, when relative to his resurrection and new life did he go to minister or to preach to these spirits in prison? Um, there have been three views historically uh, on this issue and many subcategories. I think there's one commentator who had way too much time on his hands and he calculated that there are 180 different combinations that you can come up with for these within these three views. But the three primary historical views held were first, Jesus, between the time of his death and resurrection, descended into hell, which is one interpretation of the Apostles' Creed, and preached to those spirits who uh, died in the flood due to their rebellion, or possibly a subcategory to the fallen angels who were somehow responsible for uh, the rebellion. So the first one, he descended into hell. The second is that Jesus, uh, by the Holy Spirit, preached through Noah when Noah preached to those rebel hearts. And they can be described as being imprisoned, not because they were imprisoned then, but because as a result of their rebellion, they are now in prison. That is to say, they're presently in hell. So the second view is that Jesus preached via the Holy Spirit through Noah. And the third view is that Jesus, uh, in his resurrected state, particularly his ascension, proclaimed victory over fallen angels and demonic forces. So he descended into hell, he preached through Noah, or in his resurrected state, proclaimed victory over fallen angels and demons. So beginning with process of elimination, I think two of these opinions are, are viable. Both have been held by great theologians throughout the church, and both or all of them have difficulties that you have to deal with uh, no matter which view you take. The one I don't think is very reasonable is that Christ descended into hell in the intermediate, intermediate period between his death and resurrection. Uh, if we understand verse, verse 18 as as Christ in his resurrected glorified state, as, as I do understand it, uh, this doesn't fit because it says in which, in his spirit, he went. Well, if, his, if it includes also his resurrected body, then that doesn't make sense. Um, also, the interpretation of this doesn't really fit in the context very well. I, I mean, what help is it to people who are suffering, who are trying to follow Jesus, that, that he descended into hell and preached to some people? <laughs> and thirdly, why? what did he preach to them? It, surely it's not some sort of second chance theology, like you, you can be redeemed... You know, he was he just saying na 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 boo boo, I, right? <laughs> also, Jesus suggested that he would be with the thief on the cross 
uh, in paradise that day. So that view doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Uh, the second option that Christ preached through Noah is is very plausible, held by um, Clowney and D.A. Carson and many many notable theologians. First uh, Peter chapter one verses ten and eleven give us some help here. It says concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was be, to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating. And he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So we see that language there, the Spirit of Christ preaching through these Old Testament prophets and saints. So I think there's some some reasonable um, application to be made there. It also makes sense contextually and in application. Uh, The Reformation Study Bible has a good note here. It says, the point of Peter's argument would then be that as God vindicated Noah, then by sending the judgment Noah proclaimed, he will vindicate Christians when he judges the world according to the Christian proclamation. This makes sense particularly in proximity to First um, Peter 3.15, where we're told to stand up and for our hope that we have within us. And also this, this view to me makes the most sense of the rest of the comments to follow about Noah and who does seem to indeed have been vindicated by the flood. Uh, the difficulties with this interpretation to me uh, it, it's dependent again on making spirit in verse 18 and a capital S spirit. It has to be that he was in the Holy Spirit, which I think is a reasonable but not the best way to understand that, that parallel contrast, as I said. Also, in applying the truths here, if we took this interpretation, we'd have to say, Basically, follow Noah's example. Noah was faithful and remained faithful in preaching, though he was ridiculed. But I think here he's, he's setting up not Noah as example, but Christ as example primarily. So the, the uh, application would be follow Noah, or I think it should be follow Christ. So that's a subtle difference, not a deal breaker, but enough to make me question the third interpretation is my personal uh, opinion, held loosely, that it's correct, but that is that Christ in his resurrected state proclaims victory over spiritual forces. So I'll give you some difficulties before I tell you why I like it. Uh, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense of that verb went. Like, where did he go? He, it says he went. Well, when did he go? Where did he go? Um, it doesn't fit quite perfectly. It's also strange that he said to have proclaimed to those spirits of disobedience, specifically from Noah's day. Why just those spirits from Noah's day? Why not all of them? And then we also have to deal with what role did these spiritual forces play in the days of Noah? So the reason I like this view, and I think it edges out the others a little bit, is it makes the most sense of the context. That's Pure and simple, context rules the day. Uh, it flows directly out of and goes along with what I believe to be the best understanding of verse 18. And it's also plainly, in my mind, the vo- most victorious, the, the best understanding of setting Christ up as example in his victory. So my primary objection to this this view has been, why these specific 
beings? Why these beings that were rebellious in Noah's day if they were not people but spiritual forces? Why just those? In my opinion, commentator Karen Jobs does a, a very convincing job of answering these objections. And what she does is points us to what she proves as having been a, a well-known piece of rather bizarre literature called First Enoch. Which, in a sense, when you're reading along and you see something bizarre in the New Testament, you might wonder, well, are they referencing some other thing? Are they referencing some apocryphal literature or something? Which is something we know happens in Second Peter and Jude uh, as a proven fact. So it makes some sense to me. So in First Enoch, there's this story about these fallen angels called uh, Watchers. And these creatures were kind of an embellishment of this mysterious story we read in Genesis 6, where it says, The sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. So these watchers in First Enoch were ultimately uh, the fathers of these children, and they were responsible for the corruption and rebellion that resulted in the flood. In the story, God tells them that they will remain imprisoned within the earth. And he even uses the title, the spirits, to refer to their offspring. So Jobs points out, and I think uh, rightly, that if this is the tradition Peter is pointing to, the spirits Christ preached to would be fallen angels or demonic spirit, uh, spirits more generally. Not just the noatic ones, but more generally. And this story points to that reality. So she, to be clear, she's not setting up the story of First Enoch as the answer, but as that would have been a familiar story to him, those people, she, he uses it as kind of an illustration. So in this case, Peter is using the story to say more broadly, Christ in his resurrected state proclaimed victory over all spiritual powers of evil as a whole. It is not merely proclaiming to spirits of Noah's day. So, all of that... To get down to a little bit of application, this understanding uh, rings a glorious and resounding gong of victory for Christ. Jesus Christ has won. He proclaims victory over his enemies. His enemies are defeated. They are, in a sense, assuming the position of footstool. And Peter says as much, alluding to Psalm 110 at the end here, in verse 22, and he says of Jesus, who has gone into the heaven, into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So I think the point of all this is Peter is again directing our eyes upward back to those greater realities. Jesus was on the one hand meek and humble in his suffering, exemplary in righteous submission to the will of the Father, but suffering was not an end in itself. Suffering was a means to his glorification, to his triumph, to the conquering of all his and our enemies. The point is, Jesus wins. Not only does Jesus win, but Peter moves on here to encourage our hearts by showing us how we participate in his victory. And he does so by turning our attention to the relationship between Noah and Christian baptism. So again, uh, back to verse 20. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience awaited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. 
Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I think if there's any doubt that we have a stake in Christ and His accomplishments based on our union with Him, uh, looking to baptism is the place to go. Paul does the exact same things in Colossians. He does it beautifully. He kind of extols Christ, lifts Christ up as high as he can in one of those greatest Christological passages in the Bible. And then in chapter 2, he ties the readers directly to that glorious Christ when he says, For in him the whole fullness of body, deity dwells bodily. And this is amazing to me. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. And he goes on to point to the union language of baptism, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him. And out of that falls all of the practical instruction from Colossians. So here in our text, Peter directs our attention to baptism, lifting Christ up before us first and then showing us our union with him, and in that way encouraging us. In explaining this to us, first he says that baptism corresponds, or literally is the antitype to the passing of Noah and his family through the flood waters. So Noah survives the judgment by the salvation of the Lord passing safely through the water. And we, like Noah, are saved by passing through water in the sense that in Christ we have already passed through the deathly waters of judgment and now stand resurrected on the other side. Baptism is a symbol of our death and our resurrection with Christ, among other things. So that's why he says baptism now saves you. This is not baptismal regeneration, as we know. It is in that death and resurrection with Christ that we are spared the tsunami of coming judgment. And Peter is here careful and quick to define precisely how it is that we are saved through baptism. He says it's not as a removal of dirt from the body, which is to say it's not an ex opere operato removal of moral filth from our flesh. Baptism does not infuse us with this perfect righteousness wherewith we can now stand before the judgment seat on our own two feet just because we've been baptized. We don't enter the, the baptism waters a vile sinner and come out sinless and stainless. On the contrary, in baptism, he says, we pledge that we live before God with a good conscience. I think some translations say pledge, others say appeal. I think pledge is the better translation there. So baptism marks us out as new creatures in Christ who now live the resurrection life before God with a good conscience. It's not a life lived on our own volition. We can't muster it up within ourselves. It's precisely, he says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that this is made effectual in us in producing a life before God. So Clowney sums up Peter's teaching well here on baptism, I think, and he's actually referencing Meredith Klein here. But he says, When baptism is compared to the waters of the flood or to the waters of the Red Sea, the threatening symbolism of water is brought into view. Israel was brought through the waters of the sea and of the Jordan. Noah was brought through the waters of the flood. Christians are brought through the waters of death, the flood of destruction, in order that they might be established upon the rock, secure in the resurrection 
of Christ. So, Peter's purpose, I think, in all of this complex, difficult language and imagery is this simple point that we share in the resurrection of Christ. We do, on the one hand, share in his suffering and death, but we share in his resurrection and life. Which, it tur- which turns our attention back to the beginning of this epistle. And he says it beautifully and clearly, plainly there in chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the glory of following Christ in his sufferings is that we also join him in his defeat over the dominion of spirits of evil and over sin and even over death itself. There's one more phase of Christ's redemptive work that we follow him in, one that's often neglected, and that's his ascension. Verse 22 says, "Who has That is Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with his angels, authorities, and power, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So having kind of established our stake in Christ's death and in his resurrection, he now points us to Christ's ascension. Christ in his ascension won victory, ascended to heaven, and sits in majesty, ruling over all things. And we follow Christ in his death through our own suffering and cross-bearing. We follow him in his resurrection and newness of life through our own rebirth and living as new creatures. And now we see, we follow him in his ascension and his victory. As he sits and reigns on high, we are not bound as indentured slaves to any government or spiritual principalities. Rather, and if I may let my uh, amillennial colors bleed through here a little bit, rather we share in the present reign of Christ as he spreads his kingdom over the earth through we, his kingdom of royal priests. Revelation 5.10 says, they're extolling Christ, and he says, they say, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Ephesians 2.4-7, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And this is the astounding part here. And raises us up with him and has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's true now. So in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So no matter our millennial perspective, we should take great joy, great comfort, great confidence in the ascension of Jesus. 
that that we lowly sinners would have the privilege to suffer with Christ is astounding. But that we have been raised up and seated with him in heavenly places. That leaves me speechless. We follow Christ in his ascended victory. And that truth should be and produce in us a crystal clear focus as we endure the reproach of Christ. With the help of God, may our vision never be clouded by what is truly light and momentary affliction. So in the end, I want to return to that question, why is it good to suffer for righteousness' sake? I think that's what he's answering here. And I'm convinced, and I hope you are too, that it is indeed very good, albeit painful. It is good because Christ suffered for righteousness' sake in order to bring us to God. It is good because we follow Him in His suffering and in death, but also in His resurrection and life. And beyond all fathomable expectation, even we follow Him in His victorious ascension. So it is indeed good to suffer with our King. Amen.